Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. Welcome to BartCast number 23. I'm Chad Myers. And I'm Elaine Enns. It's August 3rd, 2018, and we'll be doing this webinar together. In four days on August 7th, it will be the 16th anniversary of the passing of LaDawn Homer Sheets. I met LaDawn in January 1976, more than 40 years ago, at a small discipleship retreat up in the San Francisco Bay Area. From that moment on, LaDawn became the single most influential mentor in my life over the course of a quarter century. This is his story offered in love and commemoration and gratitude. I met LaDawn in 1997, shortly after Chet and I began dating. And a huge gift that LaDawn gave to my family was coming up to our wedding in my hometown of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and being the first witness to Ched and my wedding vows. The morning after the ceremony, when Ched and I came to my family home, he was sitting with my parents telling his life story. Those precious hours helped my parents understand and embrace the radical discipleship community that I was now a part of. LaDawn often said, in the spiritual realm, something is set in motion by every true act of faith. On Good Friday, 2002, while in Lubbock, Texas, caretaking his 93-year-old father, our dear friend LaDawn discovered that he had become strangely jaundiced. A week later, after exploratory surgery, he was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer. Chad and I were in Greensboro, North Carolina, helping to run the first Word and World School, and this news hit our hearts like a sledgehammer. I stayed to finish out the school, but Chad immediately left to join Tenzi Hernandez and Dennis Appel of the Guadalupe Catholic Worker and several of LaDawn's family and friends at LaDawn's bedside in a Lubbock hospital. It was a very intense and difficult week. We were all in shock. The last time any of us had seen LaDawn, he had been in good health, but now he looked awful. We didn't know whether he'd make it out of the hospital alive, and our late-night conversation centered on where we could bury him and how we would have to transport his body illegally across state lines. But buoyed by prayer and our round-the-clock presence, LaDon rebounded. He decided not to try any further medical intervention and we set about discerning how and where to take him for hospice. We were ill-prepared, but we were not half-hearted. This man was so important to us that we would do whatever it took to give him a good space to finish his journey. 
Some years before, Tenzi had told Ladon that she wished to care for him when he was infirm. Now that moment had arrived, as usual in a way that none of us could have imagined. She reiterated her offer, and Dennis added, We can build a room in our garage, without a clue of how this would actually happen. Our home is yours. Without hesitation, Ladon accepted. Now we had to figure out how to get him to California. Ladon was far too weak to endure a drive across four states. As we were mulling over this conundrum, his brother Morris offered to make a couple of phone calls to, quote, see about a plane. We shrugged, unaware of the fact that Morris, at that time the pastor of a wealthy Dallas megachurch, actually had parishioners with private jets. A few hours later, Morris reported that a Learjet had been arranged to fly Ladon and Tenzi as his attendant from the local private airport to San Luis Obispo, California. We looked at each other with incredulity and gratitude and no small measure of bemusement. It was beyond ironic. The man who 35 years previously had walked away from a world of high-rolling executive jet-setting in order to commit his life to the poor and to peacemaking, would now take one last flight. The next morning, we wheeled Ladon out of the hospital onto the tarmac and into the plane, singing, Swing low, sweet chariot. They arrived hours later in Santa Maria, the central California home of Dennis and Tenzi and their two children, Rosella and Thomas. There, Ladon and all of us who helped care for him began a four-month journey of hospice that was in equal parts taxing and transforming. During this time, 18-month-year-old Thomas Ladon took his first steps and said his first words, and Homer Ladon his last. Dennis and Tenzi opened their lives in the deepest possible sense, and a crazy quilt of community arose to the task. It was an act of true faith, and what it set in motion, we are still trying to fathom. As Ladon's father, Pastor Homer Sheets, used to say, find out which way God is moving, and move with it. Ladon Sheets was born in 1934 in Brownfield, Texas, the middle of three sons. His dad, Homer, was an Assemblies of God preacher who pulled cotton by day and built churches by night among the hard scrabble towns of West Texas. His mother, with whom he was exceptionally close, was equally hardworking and faithful. Church was their whole life, and Ladon would occasionally spin stories about growing up that were both poignant and hilarious. After completing a stint in the Air Force and a business degree from Texas Tech, Ladon became a top executive for IBM in the 1960s. In this era of the first great computer technology boom, Ladon came to live large, keeping offices and homes on both coasts, eating at the best restaurants, vacationing all over the world. But he was spiritually uneasy and thirsted for the faith of his childhood to come alive again and for the gospel to mean more than it did 
to most American Christians. It was a 1967 meeting with Baptist activist theologian Clarence Jordan that disrupted Ladon's upward mobility and led to a dramatic about face. Ladon was radically inspired and challenged by Clarence's exposition of the way of Jesus in the Gospels and his experiments with interracial farming among the poor of South Georgia. After an agonizing year of discernment, Ladon divested himself of his wealth and went to live at Koinonia Partners in Americus, Georgia. Tragically, Clarence died just a few months later. But from that time on, Ladon became a living witness to and interpreter of Clarence's vision of radical discipleship to many of us around the country. Ladon expressed his gospel faith in three notable ways. He joined prayer and protest in public witness for peace and an end to the arms race. His resistance to militarism at places such as the Pentagon and military air shows earned him many long stints in jail. A leader for five years at Koinonia, Ladon felt increasingly convicted about the evil of the continuing war in Vietnam and wished to express more active resistance to it. In 1974, he joined the Jonah House Peace Community in Baltimore, where he stayed until 1979 and where he is still dearly loved. After this, he initiated a series of prayer pilgrimages at nuclear weapons plants, such as Rocky Flats in Colorado and Pantex in Texas. The prison time that resulted from his many acts of nonviolent civil disobedience was hard because of his consistent commitment to non-cooperate with an oppressive system. Yes, yet his long periods in solitary confinement in some ways also deepened his con contemplative spirit. In the 1990s, Ladon traveled to Japan and Iraq as a grassroots ambassador for peace and to visit victims of U.S. war making. A second major and related commitment was Ladon's service to the poor. He was a fierce critic of first world consumer affluence while making himself available to hurting and marginalized persons wherever he encountered them. This took him from New York's Lower East Side to rural Georgia to Skid Row in Los Angeles. For the last two decades of his life, Ladon lived out of a backpack, itinerating around the country between various communities and individuals who offered him to, in order to offer a hand in their work. He served for long stretches with our friends at the Los Angeles Catholic Worker Community. There and elsewhere, he became deeply involved in hospice work for friends uh, and also family, as well as homeless persons. Thirdly, Ladon was a man of deep prayer who desired intensely to know God ever more intimately. He spent many months in solitude, not only involuntarily in prison, but also by choice at a Benedictine monastery in Colorado. Ladon was profoundly nurtured by creation. An avid hiker, he was happiest at an old hermitage cabin at the foot of his beloved Mount Sopris 
in Colorado. Yet he was able to appreciate beauty wherever it could be found, from inner city streets to wilderness peaks. In these three and many other ways, Ladon sought to embody the way of Jesus that comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. His discipleship was exemplary in its compassion, stubborn in its spiritual questing, and rich in its generous friendship. Ladon was a complex person, a sometimes inscrutable contradiction of intimacy and individualism, mobility and rootedness, initiative and quiet non-directiveness, fierce conviction and humble receptivity. He was a faithful friend to a remarkably wide and diverse circle of us across the United States. He was the best listener many of us have ever known with an extraordinary capacity to elicit our individual struggles and dreams, to help us discern and to stay in, in touch despite many distances. It is fair to say that no one who received Ladon's full attention and who heard his remarkable story was not deeply moved and changed. Ladon said once, we won't know if something is true or not unless we try it. I know now that Jesus' invitation to seek first the kingdom and all else will be provided for you, in Matthew 6.33, I know that to be true, more reliable than any of the rinky-dink rafts we've lashed together along this river of life. Once when asked if he believed in infant baptism, Mark Twain famously retorted, Believe it? Hell, I've seen it! We've come to feel the same way about the divine economy of gift and grace. And though we've spoken and written widely on the topic, the journey of hospice was perhaps our most concrete experience of that most powerful alternative reality. At the end of his life, Ladon had no assets, no pension plan, and no health insurance, having bet his life on Jesus' promise that whosoever would release themselves from family possessions and home would receive them back a hundredfold, as Jesus said in Mark 10, 29. Ladon's investments were exclusively in relationships, in witness, and in service. And it was precisely this amazing web of friendship and care that he wove throughout his life that became his social security. Never have we witnessed such a spontaneous and sustained outpouring of mutual aid, such unquestioned devotion to a friend, such determination to return kindnesses received than we did during the hospice effort in Central California in 2002. The Guadalupe and Los Angeles Catholic worker communities and our Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries cobbled together the basic personnel, logistical, financial, and moral resources. And then we relied heavily on the solidarity of people around the country. Countless individuals and families from Ladon's extraordinary network of friends 
offered whatever was needed, from prayers and visits to bodywork and cooking, and just enough financial support to cover the costs of this hospice adhocracy. Gifts flowed in from the four directions, hot meals and fresh produce from Santa Barbara, hundreds of origami cranes from Monterey, a sheepskin from the Sierras, flowers, pictures, a walking stick, and dozens of other expressions of love and concern. Each evening for four and a half months, a different group sat around the dinner table, never fewer than half dozen, and sometimes three times that many. This became community building times of laughter and storytelling. Many of us finally got to know persons we had always heard of from Ladon. And we formed a special bond with Ladon's brothers, niece, and other family members. It was as if Ladon, in this last chapter, was orchestrating a convergence of his widely scattered circles. Here was a parable of death and resurrection. As Ladon's body atrophied, the bodies of those in communion with him over the years expanded. In the first six weeks after Ladon arrived in Santa Maria, a volunteer crew, some of whom even knew something about building, converged to transform a dilapidated garage into a beautiful hospice room. Visitors and helpers were lodged at Beatitude House of Hospitality, 10 miles west in Guadalupe, as well as in an old Winnebago loaned by friends and parked in the backyard of the Santa Maria house. Over four months, more than 100 people came to join our circle, some for a day or two, some for weeks. A website was developed to keep folk abreast, and two phones were steadily in use. Amazingly, despite this intense new focus, most of the ongoing work of the Guadalupe Catholic Worker managed to continue. Daily prayer circles sustained us, with sage and song drifting through petitions, scripture, and silence. For the first two months, Ladon was strong enough to receive most visitors and occasionally got out for a walk or drive. We celebrated his 68th birthday in late June with two big parties, beautiful times of commemoration and thanksgiving. After that, he declined slowly but steadily, and we had to start limiting visits. Throughout, Ladon received loving nursing care, particularly from Tenzi, and experienced relatively little pain. Though the process was exhausting, we were always mindful that we were in the midst of a miracle of grace, of just enough for the day. Indeed, every time we had a need, someone showed up who had the right skills, whether it was fixing plumbing, laying tile, or building a coffin. A few weeks before his passing, Ladon had said to Dennis, do you think that if I let go of all of this, I'll fall? Like all threshold experiences, birth, learning to talk, falling in love, creating art, dying proceeds on its own timeline, off the clock and calendar. 
upheld by a committed circle of prayer, love, and care. The dawn hung on longer than the doctors expected. One day in mid-July, local crone Carola Dauber was walking up to the house, as she did each morning, to do bodywork with Ladon. We could see that this day she was agitated and asked what was wrong. Each day I come here, I see the spirits gathered around this place, she said solemnly in her thick German accent. This morning their voices were so loud, it was as if a great banner was hanging over the house, announcing, a holy man is dying here. But dying is a mysterious process, even for holy people. We often discussed with Tenzi and Dennis the parallels between Ladon's process of letting go and little Thomas Ladon's struggles to take his first upright steps. Toward the end, we imagined the cloud of witnesses cheering Ladon on toward his new way of being, just as we adults were encouraging Thomas. To be sure, Ladon struggled with many aspects of this difficult passage understandably riding an emotional roller coaster, and we rode it with him. But in the end, he came to a place of acceptance, and he intoned more than once, whether or not I'm physically cured, I believe the real healing has already begun. Complicating the spiritual process of dying, however, are the politics of the death care industry. For weeks, I had researched green burials in an effort to lay Ladon in the ground according to his wishes for simplicity and our desires to tend to his body. We agreed with him that nature's intention was for our bodies to be reunited with the earth and eventually to recycle into new life. However, the local mortuary told us that embalming was necessary and that the coffin must be placed into a concrete vault. But I found out that the law requires none of this and in the process discovered that there is a lively grassroots movement out there committed to burial that is healthy for the earth, meaningful for the caregivers and respectful of the deceased. We decided that Ladon, we decided with Ladon that the local village cemetery was the most practical place to lay him to rest, given our limitations of land and resources. We then met with the caretaker to explore if a green burial would be possible. An indigenous Shumash man, he had never had anyone ask for this before and was sure that the board wouldn't like it. But he also knew that it was not illegal, and to him it sounded more in keeping with the old ways. Then I broached the subject of Ladon's strong wish that the cemetery's American flag not be flying on the day that he would be buried. The caretaker asked why and listened carefully as I described Ladon's commitments. And the caretaker responded, You know, I think I would have liked your friend, LaDon.
Elaine gave regular updates to the community on her research, and we discussed dimensions for digging the grave and options for markers. When she reported that dry ice was the best way to preserve a corpse, Ladon quipped, Elaine, you know how much I hate to be cold. As we wondered how we were going to get the body to the cemetery and how to wrangle it into a grave four feet deep, again, the right skills appeared just as we needed them. A Mennonite friend from the Midwest made a beautiful pine coffin in the backyard, which we would use to transport the body, but not to bury it in. Another friend sewed an exquisite hammock strong enough for us to lower the body. Ladon's final weeks took the shape of a vigil as we each stayed with him around the clock. In the end, it became what could only be described as labor. Indeed, Tenzi reflected frequently and eloquently on the similarities between birthing and dying. On August 5th, we gathered for Vespers in Ladon's room and celebrated Eucharist. Then early on August 6th, the day we commemorate both the transfiguration of Christ and the disfiguration of Hiroshima, Ladon slipped quietly into a coma. 24 hours later, his arduous journey of crossing over was completed. For the next 56 hours, we lived with Ladon's body, a powerful time for all of us. The women washed and prepared his corpse lovingly, while the men dug his grave over at Guadalupe Community Cemetery. The hospice room was converted into a chapel, and dozens of people came to pay last respects. We continued to pray around the body, noting how curious and unafraid little Rosella and Thomas were. And of course, we wept and laughed and told stories late into the night, a memorial bonfire burning in the backyard around the clock. This was Ladon's final gift to us, inviting us to discover how to embrace the radical simplicity and profundity of death that he had embraced in life. On August 9th, Nagasaki Day, we laid Ladon's body in the ground with a sunrise ceremony attended by more than a hundred friends. For the first time in weeks, for the exact time of our service, the morning fog cleared. There were some songs, only a few words, and then his body, clothed in his old plaid shirt, jeans and beloved bandana, was lowered. The sling almost, but not quite tearing. Just like my birth canal when I had Rosella, said Tenzi. And when we were done, the fog moved back in, covering the newly planted olive tree at the head of the grave with Pacific Ocean mist. The cemetery flag was not raised that morning until long after we were gone. These words by Kozum Ichitio, a 14th century Zen monk, hung on the wall of Ladon's hospice room beneath strands of brightly colored peace cranes. Empty-handed I enter the world, barefoot I leave it. My coming, my going, two simple happenings 
that got entangled. These words became the object of much reflection for all of us. In the aftermath of Ladon's passing, those of us who were intensely involved in this experiment have struggled to understand its full meaning. We are at peace about our efforts, knowing we did the best we could. Having put most of our other work aside during this time, we feel now that this was perhaps the most significant work we have ever done. Still, we have a sense that there is much we have yet to learn about what we went through, even these 16 years later. Ladon was our teacher by showing, not telling. We continue to feel a sense of deeper duty to take care of those who have given themselves to the way of radical discipleship. And we continue to ponder how to die with dignity in our death culture, marvel at the mystery of how community is shaped, and we long to trust more profoundly in the divine economy of grace. Ladon's absence is an irreparable tear in the fabric of our lives. He had challenged us with the fullness of the gospel way. He was a faithful companion through all the joyful and difficult twists of that way for decades. Our world has become lonelier without him. And yet we are convinced that Ladon's death, like his life, presents a singular challenge and inspiration to our discipleship. For decades, Ladon wove a rich and extraordinary tapestry of witness, relationship, and service around North America. His discipleship was not just an example. It was a sort of Rorschach test, a mirror in which we would examine our own faith. It turns out that his name, Ladon, means the gift. His fidelity to the gospel was a gift to those of us he accompanied. And that gift came back to him a hundredfold in his hour of need. And it will continue to spread outward like innumerable ripples in a pond emanating from one remarkable life as we carry on his legacy in our own discipleship. If you want to learn more about Ladon, go to YouTube and search for the title Transfiguration and Disfiguration, colon, The Witness of Ladon Sheets. And you will see there the community webinar we did in 2012 with several of Ladon's friends, including Tenzi Hernandez and Dennis Appel. Thank you for joining us for this podcast, and we hope you will continue to listen to our BARTCAST series. Thank you, friends. You have been listening to the BARTCAST, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the BARTCAST, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening.